part of uh, David's internship and preparation for the ministry is uh, learning to lead worship. And so we are getting him into the uh, work beginning uh, two weeks from today in August. Uh, David will be exhorting, he'll be filling in for me and leading the whole service. But uh, so far, David, you are leading worship with a felt sense of we're in the presence of God, which is what it's all about. Let's pray. Our Lord, we cannot get over that our worship is in the heavenly places. It is in Mount Zion. When you think of a high mountain, you think of the glory of heaven itself, and that's where we are. And so remind us, our Lord, that there is an unearthly aspect of our worship. While we're seated here, we're in this facility, we're at 16 Oaklawn Drive in Comac, in a very real sense that we don't understand, but that we know by faith we are with you. So speak to us by your own word, read and preached, we ask in the glorious name of King Jesus, amen and amen. amen. I think you're going to want to turn in your bulletins to the notes on today's sermon, which is page 10. The the late, very late 1960s and the 1970s were the time of the so-called Jesus movement that's been made popular in the recent movie, The Jesus Revolution, and there were lots of books that came out, and for those of us who were new to the Christian faith, everything was new. And one of the ones that had quite a profound impact on my generation when we were younger was a book called Body Life by a pastor named Ray Stedman, who was from Southern California. And uh, basically, he was taking the themes of Ephesians 4 and, and saying, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to everybody, and everybody's expected to use their gifts in the body, hence the term, and a good term, body life. And there was, for years, an obsession with gifts. What are my gifts? How do I know what my gifts are? How am I supposed to use my gifts? And there was kind of a bringing together of the hyper-individualism of the 1960s together with a very biblical concept of gifts. And gifts are, are you know, basically their skills and their talents that God gives to you that you use under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, you use them to serve others for the kingdom of God. So it's really, you know, kind of diffuses things, deflates the balloon. There's nothing particularly mystical about gifts, skills, abilities under the lordship of Christ, animated by the Spirit, and they're used to, to serve other people for the purpose of the kingdom of God. And, and you see this in every area in life. Um, at least the way I'm wired, I particularly appreciate the gifts I don't have which means I appreciate a lot of gifts because <laughs> so many of them. I don't. One of them is motherhood. And folks, no matter what we try to do in our culture, give me a break. A man cannot be a mother. Come on. And, a mo- and motherhood is not only a, a biological fact, uh, but it really is a gift. Uh, men see this. Our wives tend to have far more 
patience and kind of an intuitive grasp of children and a sense of what to do. Well, those are gifts that develop. Or, for example, if you want to go in another direction, the gifts of carpentry, people that can, can look at wood and the tools and how you bring out of that wood the beautiful cabinetry or furniture or whatever it would be, that's a gift. Um, engineering, one of our sons is an engineer, and he can, he can look at boilers and know the different dynamics that need to come in the size and, and the diameters of the, of the pipes in them and so on and put them together. Um, that's a, there's a gift. Um, Dr. Gaffey, medical gift. She can look at, at the human body and diagnoses and, and be able to put that together and come up with a way that can be of help uh, or, or electrical work that like Mike Matone has so that you can, you can understand electricity and not kill yourself doing it <laughs> and set things up. See, I, I really appreciate the gift of, that Mike Matone has and other electricians guaranteed if, if I were to be your electrician, one of two things would happen. Either you'd have no power at all or the house would burn down very quickly. Uh, so there's, there's a gift, though. To see, see, you get the idea when, when you think of gifts, and you could go on and on and on with them. And what's very interesting is that, is that the, um, the beginning, if you will, of, of the use of gifts, which are skills under the Lordship of Christ now, uh, that are used for the service of others. All of that you can read for yourself. Don't, don't look there now. I'm just going to allude to it. In, in Exodus 35, uh, the very last part of Exodus chapter 35, and the, and the first part of, of, of chapter 36. And it's very interesting because you have all the contours of the understanding of gifts. You have very specific people, Bezalel and Aholiab, okay, so those are two people, and they, they lead others. They are filled with the Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They are intelligent. They are knowledgeable. They not only have general understanding, but they have specific understanding, and they, they also have they also have craftsmanship abilities. So the, the overall um, understanding of embroidery and woodwork and metalwork and so on uh, has... Has, has an understanding of what's to be done with it, but that's not enough. They have the gifts of craftsmanship so they can really do something with it, and they're to do as the Lord commanded. There you go. It's under the Lordship of Christ. They are to do only what they do as the Lord commanded. And so there, there's your contour for gifts, and that's a great lesson for all of you. Uh, Romans 12 the apostle says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't you be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might test and approve God's good and pleasing and perfect will. And then he goes on to give a whole series of the gifts that are given for those who present their bodies as a living sacrifice. And the bridge is, let each of you assess himself with sober judgment. You think carefully. Sober judgment is, do not ask me to be the electrician for your house. Okay. Sober judgment, quite frankly, is to be honest if you're a man and say, I can't be a, mo- a wife and a mother. So, so sober judgment, two feet on the ground, you're, you're thinking clearly with all of these things. Now, um, what does this all have to do with the making of a man for the ministry? Remember your role as a congregation. 
Your role as a congregation as you assess a David Rios or as you assess men for the ruling eldership, or as you assess men for the diaconate, or other men that come down the line, I hope David's the first of many interns that we have, is to be the voice of Christ. What does that mean? To, To speak what he says in his word about whether or not, in this case, a David Rios is a man you see being called to the ministry. Is he being made as a minister? And last week, we began the first of our three parts by saying there's a desire that a man has to be a minister. You need to, you need to see that and, and feel that. Um, and then also there's graces that precede what we're dealing with today. He's got to be above reproach, a one-wife husband. If he's married, he's, he's faithful to his wife, not a playboy type. He's given to hospitality. And so in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3, there are those graces, so desire and graces are, are in there. Um, so, so that's what we covered last week. That's what you look for in a man. Um, this week, though, we're dealing with gifts. Okay, We're dealing with the gifts that a man needs to have. We're going to make this a workshop. I love the, the uh, point Hughes Oliphant Olds makes about worship as being a workshop. So we're going to make this kind of a workshop today as we look into the subject of the gifts necessary to be, by God's grace, an effective minister. And remember, it's graces first. There are many that will stand before Jesus and say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many wonderful things in your name? There's, There's gifts. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. Never put gifts in the place of graces. That's why it's, 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 it's blood-curdling to read of men who are profoundly gifted as speakers. And in a real sense, no small measure of gifts in leadership. And yet they are as crooked as crooked sticks. That, that's, that's really, really scary. But anyway, let's. so today we're dealing with the making of a minister gifts and I'm going to do this in, in two parts, okay? One is, is kind of generally looking at gifts. It's an interesting topic in itself. And then specific gifts um, by which God is making a man as, as a minister, okay? And you will, please take notes because you're going to use this material. As God is making a minister, this is general, there are are specific, listen carefully, there are specific gifts for rescuing the perishing and building up the church. If a man is going to be in the ministry of rescuing the perishing, the salvation of the lost, and the building up of the church, there are specific gifts for a man to be able to do that. Um, You must be apt to teach um, you must be, we read it in the text in, in Titus, you must be able to convince or to convict. You must be able to instruct and to rebuke, okay? So, so there's an example of what we mean. In order to do the work of rescuing the perishing, uh, humanly speaking, and building up the body of Christ, there must be no, those gifts. In other words, they are skills that are necessary to fulfill the intention of Christ 
for the work of the ministry. Jesus has, in the same way, there's an intention for a carpenter, there's an intention for a general contract or an electrician contract or electrician. There's things that they must do, and there are skills that lead up to that. There are skills, there are things a minister must do to fulfill the intention of Christ for his church, and there's skills that are necessary. You say, well, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you're to shepherd the flock. What are the skills necessary to shepherd the flock? You are to rule the elders who rule well. What does it take to rule well? Um, To proclaim, which is a very technical word in the scriptures, the, the language of a herald, and what's in view in that. To comfort. You know, a pastor's got to have, if you put it this way, a good bedside manner. He's got to be able to speak comfortably, even have the language in Isaiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem, the ability to comfort, the ability to save. That by all means I might save some. So you got the idea, okay? This is the, these are the things that the Lord has for the intention for the minister. And there have to be skills that enable the man to do those things. Now, I, I, all of these things, brothers and sisters, I would love to spend a whole... I do spend a day on it in the pastoral theology class, but i got to be really crisp in this. But this is really fascinating. Where do these gifts come from? You know, they don't just pop out of the air. Where are the various gifts in any area of life, but particularly in the ministry... How, how do these gifts come, and where do they come from? Well, obviously, they come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The Apostle Paul says, what do we have that we have not yet received? And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul spins that out more, and he says these are spiritual things. They are things of the Holy Spirit that come. Okay, so, so God is really the one from whom the gifts come. But, but then, then as you go beyond that, isn't it interesting to think of how from conception through gestation there is the formation of that person who will be a mother, a father, a contractor, an artist, a musician, a pastor, right? And, and, and so the writer of Psalm 139 is in awe of this. I was fearfully and wonderfully made when I was knit together in my mother's womb. And when you see the way a, a seamstress uh, will knit something together or, or knit uh, a letter or numbers or a message in a piece of material God knit these skills into you and to others as you were being formed in your mother's womb. Uh, Moses, Moses has a problem with his gifts in speaking, and he's not a good speaker. Eventually Aaron will take his place. And when, when he complains to God about this, God's answer is, Moses, who made your mouth? Okay, so there's what you're getting at in this whole fascinating field of gestation and, and a conception and gestation. But, and, and I find this one to be a little bit harder to get my hands on, 
In regeneration, in the new birth, as we mentioned last week, what is that? That's the intrusion of the life of heaven, the dynamics of the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ, the life of eternity, all of that, all of that is imported into people whom the Lord converts. And, and those gifts in any area are somehow connected with that. Why? Well, if they're spiritual things, they come from the Spirit, and we receive the Spirit at the new birth, somehow there has to be some impartation or development or whatever of gifts by the work of regeneration. And I think it's all kind of summed up when Paul says we have the mind of Christ the mind of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who sees his kingdom, who ordains every part of it. And something of that comes into you when you're born again. And that's why you do think about your gifts and the way you can serve the Lord. And then, then there's just, if you want to put it this way, ordinary acquisition of gifts. We'll give some specifics in just a moment. But when Paul says to Timothy, let your progress be made evident to all. He doesn't say let the progress of the Spirit be evident to all. He says let your progress be evident to all. There's a development of those gifts that come in the ministry. So there's that. And then what's even more fascinating is the immediate work of the Holy Spirit. You see this in the book of Judges when God calls people to bring about Salvation is the word, deliverance for Israel. And the Spirit comes upon them for those tasks. Jesus is anointed with the Spirit above measure as he goes out to do battle with the devil and with the world. And and there's that equipment of the Holy Spirit. So I just call that the immediate work of the Spirit. Paul says, pray for me uh, that I might be given utterance, that I might speak the word boldly as I ought to speak, and that's by the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a specific illustration of that we'll come to. So I'm just giving you generally the idea from from God and then gestation or conception, gestation, the work of of regeneration, uh, the way we develop our gifts in various ways, and and then then the Spirit working immediately. Okay, that's, that's how these things come. But these things are all part of the life and work of the ministry, and these things need to be cultivated by a minister, however they come. Uh, when, when the apostle Paul tells Timothy, he says, you've got a, a gift in you that's like a, a coal, like an ember, and he says, fan into flame the gift that was given to you by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what we're talking about, letting your progress be made known to all. Don't neglect the gift that's in you. And let me just use this, this illustration. Um, in our old, my old presbytery in Connecticut, uh, New York, and New England, uh, there was a minister slightly younger than I am, and I uh, came into the presbytery in the 80s, whenever it was, a wonderful guy, just a tremendous, a wonderful personality, terrible speaker. It was horrible to have to listen. He just really was not a good speaker. And he judged himself with sober judgment. He knew he could speak, but he couldn't speak well. 
And so he connected with Toastmasters, which is an international organization that's designed to help particularly business people, ministers, anybody in the, in the public eye to be able to speak. This man is now, in my opinion, one of the top communicators in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He has become comfortable with his voice, with his own manner. He's developed ways of speaking. He's utterly a captivating speaker. Now, that's, that's what I mean by, by the cultivation of, of gifts in the ministry, okay? And, and uh, so, and, and see, the, but above all else, folks, the most, the most effective teacher is someone who's always a learner. You have men in the ministry, and they don't think they have space to learn anything else. You really don't want that man to be your minister. Let your progress be evident to all in all areas. And a good teacher is always, first of all, a better learner. But if we don't get on to the specifics, we'll never get done. And here we go. These are the specific gifts as God is making a minister. And I'm going to try to do a portrait for you here, okay? I'm not an artist, but I'm going to try to do a portrait. Um, and, and so I want you to picture with me um, what, what, the, what, the, these, what this looks like. There's three specific gifts that God puts into, develops into, or has a man develop um, as, as a minister. Number one are mental gifts. And those mental gifts are, and I use this in each point, it's a sanctified mind. What is sanctified? Under the lordship of Christ. Bezalel and Aholiab, they were given knowledge, they were given skills, they were to do what I commanded you, okay? And the spirit uses the word. So being filled with the spirit does mean you will want to do what the word says. As you want to do what the word says, you're filled with the spirit, a sanctified mind under the lordship of Christ. What does that look like? It's a picture of a man, males are to be in the ministry, resolutely and lovingly submissive to the absolute authority of Holy Scripture in everything. That's number one. That's the top of the list. That, that is the highest of all of these things. This is a man, and as you listen to him, as you watch him, as you or communicate with him, it's clear he is resolutely and lovingly submissive to the absolute authority of Holy Scripture. Titus, hold fast the form of sound teaching that you have been taught. Why? It's health-giving. Not only healthy in itself, it is health-giving teaching. And that is number one for a minister. Let me, give you, let me give you an analogy. You, a man is, is elected to office in the United States. The first thing he does before he assumes his office is he takes a vow, it should be usually on the Bible, but he takes a vow to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, so help him or her God. 
If that's not done, you have the destruction of a culture. It's one of the reasons, quite frankly, why there's such a shaking in our own culture. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration in the church realm in in just a moment, but you see how important that is. Now, with a minister, it's do you affirm, do you subscribe to the system of doctrine taught in Holy Scripture as developed in the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church? That's the essence of it, and that is under really your commitment to the Scriptures. I'm going to give you two words that will tell you why there's an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Crossed fingers. It's the latter part of the 1900s, of the 19th century, the 1800s, the early part of the 20th century. Ministers have studied in areas and under influences that are not friends of historic Christianity. They come into the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. And do you affirm, do you subscribe to the system of doctrine taught in the scriptures as made known and the confession of faith in larger and shorter catechisms? I do. When they didn't, that brought about and is still bringing about the demise of the Presbyterian Church of the United States in America, and it's why there's an Orthodox Presbyterian Church. No crossed fingers in a denomination that's faithful to the Scriptures. Do you sincerely affirm these things? Now, you can parse that out in different ways, but that's what I mean. A mind reverently, joyfully submitted to the final authority of Holy Scripture and its absolute authority. Now, let's do the picture, develop the picture a little bit more. What does that mean? You're with the man, you're talking with him, and he, he knows what the Bible's about. Not all of it, because you never will, it's from God, but from Genesis to Revelation, this man is more or less conversant in all of it. And, and he loves the interrelatedness of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way the, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed, and how Christ is made known in all of the scriptures so that he glows when he realized the greatest sermon ever preached is Jesus who opened up in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. And and he's not only familiar with the scriptures, the languages of the scriptures, they captivate him because it's the language the Holy Spirit used for the Old Testament and for the New Testament. And the way it's translated is fascinating to him because they reflect the nuances of that language that he studied. And it's not only that, It's the doctrines of the Word of God. He's thrilled with what the Word of God teaches about God, teaches about Christ, teaches about salvation, teaches about the state, teaches about marriage, teaches about the future things. He's aware of how the Scriptures are like a flower that opens up with the themes of the Old Testament that that flower and with the coming of Christ. He just doesn't know it. He, he just wants to pop with it. Everybody wants to pop in different ways. 
But but this is him. It's like John Bunyan. They said of John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you cut him, his blood was bibline. Now, the red blood cells of, of, of a fascination with the blood of Christ, the white blood cells of holiness, and, and all of the things that make a good, rich blood bibline, okay? And so, so that's what you want in the man. That's part of his portrait. And it's not only that. He's got the tools to open up the scriptures, to teach them, to, to and we'll come to what that means in just a moment, but, but, but he's got, he can open up the scriptures and he can explain them. And, and he shows you things that it's not imagining, wow, I never saw that before, but it's better saying, it's so obvious, it's right here. And he opens it up to you with those skills and the dexterity. And not only that, but the ability to apply the text in a way that really convinces your conscience, not imposing on the text things that aren't there, but drawing out from the text those things that just captivate you about your own belief. That, folks, that, folks is part of orthodox counterculture over against a culture of disregard for the scriptures or slipshod treatment of the scriptures. This is a man who is careful with the scriptures. Let me tell you something else that's scary about our culture. The utter lack of discernment or even thoughtfulness about what people are listening to on their televisions, on the internet, on the radio, and in so-called churches. Getting gross error. Now, if sound teaching is healthy and health-giving, what's unsound teaching? It's poison. It destroys. You want a man who can give you that, that health-giving and healthy teaching. And there's another thing that comes with it. He, 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 I, I, I hate the word common sense, the phrase, because I say if, if there were really such a thing as common sense, there'd be more of it. <laughs> but, but he's got some practical judgment. He knows how to communicate those things to you. Paul says, I have many things I could tell you, but you weren't able to bear them. And here is a person with a sound judgment to know how to bring those things to you. Those are, that's the gifts of a sanctified mind. Seminary, a place where man studies the Greek, the Hebrew, systematic theology, biblical theology, church history, all these other things, that, that won't give you all of these things. But it's indispensable to it. Where'd your pastor go to school? I have no idea. In fact, I'm not even sure he went to school. Where'd he get his training in the scriptures? I don't know. Why do you go there? I like to hear him speak. Okay. You need open heart surgery. 
and uh, you got to pick a doctor. So you look around, and here's somebody, no medical training, basically doesn't know much of anything about a heart, but he sure is a nice guy. Uh, write out your will and get ready to have a casket. Does that sound blunt? Yeah, it is. It is blunt. But after years and years and years of seeing people who have had a lot of very bad spiritual surgery done on them. Yeah, I'm serious about that, folks. Seminary training. A full, does it make any difference? Well, it does make a difference. But the seminary name is not as important as the seminary content, the seminary ethos, and the seminary's goals. Well, we want to turn out the best intellectuals. Fine, let them go on and get a Ph.D., we want to turn out pastors. One of the reasons we love Greenville Seminary. They're right up front. They want to train men who want to be pastors. Okay, so, so that's the first portrait, okay? Um, a sanctified mind. The second is in gifts. If there's mental gifts, there's the gifts of vocal communication, or if you will, sanctified speech. Speech that is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, vocal communication. Why? Folks, all the language in the scriptures that describes the main work of the ministry, all of it assumes the ability to speak, to declare, to proclaim, to rebuke, to exhort, to warn, to teach, all of that. You don't do that by dancing. Pray tell, how do you know how to flee out of a building when somebody does a ballet in front of you? That's ridiculous. They've got to be able to speak. And even Paul says, well, even to speak, not like on, with an uncertain sound, but with something that people can understand. So all the language describing gospel ministry just assumes the ability to speak. Now, what, what is that? Well, it's the natural and acquired and cultivated ability to speak, remember, formed from conception and gestation, and then acquired, however it comes, and it's cultivated ability to speak so as, number one, to secure the listening ear of the average person. Jesus so spoke. He spoke that the common people heard him gladly. The Sermon on the Mount is done, and it's not like the rabbinic lessons that were given. Jesus spoke of birds, and he spoke of he spoke of flowers, and he and he spoke he spoke in other places of widows' mites, and so and people loved it because it secured the hearing of of, of not of the intelligentsia, but of but of the average person. Now there are people who are called to minister to the intelligentsia, I guess, but in most cases, just to secure the listening of the average person. Can you say, as a common person, I listen, I enjoy listening to, I hear gladly the one who's speaking. He can express his thoughts clearly and convincingly to the average person. He is able to teach. He is able to rebuke. He is able to convince. 
mean, that frankly was one of the great strengths of the late Tim Keller. He, he was one who knew how to communicate to his audience and to do it convincingly. And it's the natural and acquired and cultivated ability to speak as to be received as a messenger of God without torturing the ears and the discernment of those who are listening. It doesn't mean he can't be a genuine Christian. Do you want to listen to Can you listen to that? You can't even understand it. And so whatever else the man's gifts are, that's not the gift to preach. And torturing the discernment of the average listener, that was a fascinating message. I just don't think it had anything to do with the text of the scriptures. In fact, as I'm listening, I think there's things that are actually the opposite of what... See, that's discernment. And a man has to have the ability to speak so you don't torture the ears or the discernment of the true people of God. And I, I get loads of illustration, but I won't I will forbear. But 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when you received the word of God from us, you didn't receive it as the word of man, which they got a lot of, but as it is in truth, the word of God which powerfully works in you who believe. There was something about the Apostle Paul speaking that, that they knew it was what God would say. So, so there has to be that natural, acquired, and cultivated ability to speak, to secure the listening ear of the average person, to express the thoughts um, of, of the scriptures so they convince. And one of the things that's interesting in, in Acts 14, the apostles so spoke that people believed. Uh, you don't believe apart from grace, but, but they so spoke that it was convincing. Okay, and, and then also they received without torturing ears and discernment. But I've got to add this one. And quite frankly, I don't, when I do this with you, I'm just going to say, I, I, I really didn't get it because I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's there, okay? There is also something beyond natural, acquired, and cultivated, and, and it's called unction. It's called the unction, which really comes from the language of, of, of the oil, of the anointing that would come, unction, Isaiah, for, in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, Jesus' ministry begins by saying, The Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That He's given the Spirit to that end. In Acts chapter 1 and, and verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And it's fascinating in the book of Acts when the disciples pray for boldness for the apostles as they speak. The Spirit comes on them, like the judges, and they speak the word of God boldly, which is probably the nearest word for unction. Pray for me that I might speak the word boldly as it's necessary that I speak. And, 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 and you know, it's like the judge who was asked how he defined pornography. And he said, I, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. And you can laugh 
But but that's true of that's true of this thing called unction. It, you can't really define it. But you sit under the anointed ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones or an Albert N. Martin or a Sinclair Ferguson. We had so many of these in Franklin Square for our Bible conferences. Bill Hughes, very mild mannered. We called him the seraphic Bill Hughes. It was like he was a, almost like an angel speaking. And there was something about that man as he spoke. And it wasn't the way he did it. I don't know what it was. But you felt this man had been breathing the oxygen of heaven and then gave it to you. It's unction. Let me give you a quick story and then we'll do the last one and it's quick. Um, Professor John Murray was, uh, he was the uh, main teacher of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in its, really in, in its mid-19th century, uh, mid-20th century heyday. Uh, Professor Murray was a Scot. I've told you the story. He had one eye shot out in World War I, and uh, he had a glass eye. And they said, well, how do you know the, the difference between Professor Murray's glass eye and his real eye? And they said, well, there's a glimmer of mercy in, in, his, in his glass eye. <laughs> he was no, no, very, very strict Scot. And the stories of, of Professor Murray are legendary, but he was also a, very much a human being. And one of the things that grieved him about Orthodox Presbyterian preaching, he was an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, is it was very often dead. And Professor Murray was wont, this is this strict psalm-singing Scot. Periodically, he would go into Center City, Philadelphia to listen to a black preacher. Imagine the Scot in an all-black church. It didn't bother him. He was in there to worship, and he was a psalm singer, so he'd have some problems with the music. And he would say, I didn't always dot my I's and cross my T's the same way the preacher did. But there was an unction in that man, and I needed to hear it. That black preacher was, was interviewed I think by the Philadelphia Inquirer, the, the main newspaper in the city, because he was just really well-known. People went to hear this man preach. And they said, well, sir, what's the secret to your anointing? He was quite aged at the time. He says, well, he says, I don't know what the secret of my anointing is. He says, all I know is I study and I study and I study until I was full of fuel. And then I, I get up in the pulpit. And then I, before I get up in the pulpit, I pray and I pray and I pray until I was red hot. And then I get up in the pulpit and I explode. <laughs> I think it's the best definition of anointing I've heard. And God gives that to men. Now, different, different men comes across in different ways. But folks, that's gift of vocal communication. And last, and just very, very quickly, because this one would take lots and lots of time, but it's very important, leadership. A man's got to have a sanctified mind. He's got to have a sanctified speech. 
but he also has to have sanctified ruling abilities. The elder who rules well is worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in teaching. That's the main way the minister does his rule. If a man doesn't know how to rule his own household, how can he manage, stand before, and lead, is the word, the church of God. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, and there he's not speaking of political leaders, he says those who spoke the word of God to you, and how does he describe them? Your leaders, an episkopos, one who is a bishop, he watches out over the congregation, he's not, he's not a narcissist looking at things. He is someone who is looking out for the well-being of the church. That's leadership. Shepherding the flock. You have to lead the sheep, right? So, so, so sanctified ruling or leading abilities. What does that mean? More than the ordinary measures of spiritual discernment, wisdom, and courage. That's, that's the sum of it, more than the ordinary measures of spiritual discernment, wisdom, and courage. Leadership is not spastic, folks. You react to things. You think things through. That's discernment, to judge between things. Wisdom. How do we act, how do we lead in the fear of God? And quite frankly, guts. Courage to move ahead when you've got to move ahead. That's why the study of good military leaders this should be a, a study at times for ministers as well, because you're in a battle, you're in a war. You don't, you don't roll over like a caterpillar and give up. You've got to move ahead. And that takes courage. So more than the ordinary measures of spiritual discernment, wisdom, and courage, but specifically more than the ordinary makeup consistent with Christ's rule in the church. How does Jesus lead his flock as a shepherd ruler? I get a little bit concerned when men talk about their authority, their authority to rule. The minister's authority, the pastor's authority, is the authority to rule as a shepherd. I have taken you, David. I've taken you from the fields where you shepherded the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. What is Jesus? He's the good shepherd who has all authority in heaven and on earth and in glory. He does. That is what he's called. He's the king who is also the shepherd of his people. Or, as well, a servant leader. I want you to know, I'm the minister. I call the shots. I'm the leader. My way or the highway. Brother, you take the highway. That's not the way Jesus leads. Jesus leads by taking up a towel and a basin and washing the feet of his disciples. And that my way or the highway mentality for a minister is odious. 
That's not the way Jesus leads. And, and so, so there's this, this sense of how Christ leads within the church so that you respect him as you look to him, not in himself, but he, Christ shows himself through you. And then more than the ordinary spiritual, again, I don't know how to put this, force of character is the best language that I can come up with, and I'm even scared of that. Hitler had force of character. That's not what I'm talking about. Force of character. Isaiah 50 and verse 7, Jesus speaking prophetically, I set my face like flint to go to the cross. That's force of character. Matthew 16 and verse 21, which would be the equivalent, I must go to Jerusalem that my exodus, that my departure might be accomplished. That's force of character. I must do this, and I'm not going to be stopped. Acts 19 and verse 21, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia, Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem. He had all kinds of claims on his time by that point, but Paul knew by the Spirit he had a place to be at a certain time. I must be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. That's force of character. Philippians 3 and verse 13, forgetting what is behind, I strain forward. I'm a runner, straining and stretching forward to what lies ahead. I press on. You could probably come up with a better phrase, but that's force of character to move ahead. And a minister must have that. This is for extended discussion. I don't need to convince you. That's the greatest void with men in our culture. Leadership skills. On the one hand, you've got the wimps, and they've got an overcooked piece of linguine for spine. Or toxic masculinity, whatever that means. A plague on both of your houses. There's something called a gentle man, a man who at the same time, like Jesus, is meek and lowly. Very little of that in our culture. And there's reasons, and I'm not blaming men, I'm not blaming, putting, but a lot of this has been the culture tearing this down, regardless of the reasons, and there's a lot of them. What a voice. One of the reasons we have so many fine, godly, single Christian women, and so few Christian men for them to marry as husbands. Men who lead as servants, because that's the way the great minister Jesus does it. Okay, so, so, so please, folks, keep those three. It's very helpful. Mental gifts, vocal communication, leadership, and, 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 and what do you do with all of that? Let yourself be ministered to by a man who desires the ministry and has the graces. We have one right here in our midst, our intern David Rios. Let yourself be ministered to by him. Doesn't mean you don't tell him about yourself, but, but, but imbibe him, his words, his thoughts, his way of, his way of kind of getting your, your spiritual vital juices going that, by that, and watch the graces of God in him. 
And then ask yourself how you were impacted. And, and again, different ministers impact in different ways. Uh, the power of an Al Martin in his height impacts you like the power of a tornado. The impact of the late Ted Donnelly, who spoke pretty much like this, is just as powerful, although it's very quiet. How does that man's ministry impact you? You need to ask that if you're going to be the voice of Christ. There's a wonderful story about Benjamin Franklin, who was hardly a Christian, and uh, George Whitfield, who was a tremendous preacher. He'd be out in fields and he could preach to thousands of people with this massive voice that he had. And, and he was, I mean, you just read Whitfield's sermons, and how amazing what, uh, what it must have been like to hear them. And people are running to hear George Whitfield preach in the field. And here's Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia, who was a little bit portly, probably didn't run real well, but he was running as best as he could. And somebody said, Mr. Franklin, Mr. Franklin, do you believe what that minister preaches? And Franklin looks at him and says, no, I don't, but he does. <laughs> so it impacted him. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was never converted, but he, there was something about Whitfield, and even Franklin himself couldn't define. But so, you see, so how are you impacted by that man? And pray, pray that the perfect model be formed in David and in others. When we pray for ministers, be ye imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay. And, and, and that's where, again, our role comes in, not just observing, not just listening, but praying, Lord, form a David Rios uh, to have a sanctified mind, sanctified uh, voc gifts of vocal communication. Incidentally, if we didn't see at least the seeds of these gifts, he wouldn't even be here as an intern. But you're watching those germinate and develop it. And did the officers make a mistake? And I don't know, having, but that's the way you think. Okay. So there's one more area. And believe it or not, there's one little text in the book of Acts that you probably have slidden over, slid over. You did slide over. I don't know what it was. You, <laughs> you've, you've gone over it very quickly. And that, that verse contains a whole wealth of information about what's called recognition and calling in the ministry. And I think you'll find that to be fascinating. That's next week. Let's pray. And now, our Lord, thank you that we could have this time to think about what it is to be your voice in the congregation as we assess the gifts of David Rios. And our Lord, we are talking not about necessarily a specific place of service, but does he have the gifts for service? And we thank you that your word when we look at it as we did today, it's just so practical and showing us what to look for so that not only might our brother David's and son in the Lord David's gifts be assessed under the Lordship of Christ, but so that we as a congregation might be a voice under the Lordship of Christ as well. So God of gifts, God of graces, we bless you and we pray you'll use this message for our formation and reformation into the image of Christ. Amen.